Okay, let's get started. I'm trying to limit myself more to things available at the Art Institute. So they just opened their new medieval and renaissance galleries last night. And all of this is just so easily available to us, this incredible museum. And you can go experience some of these pieces of art. I don't know if they've rearranged this one to be there or not, but it's a classic Annunciation. You see a subtle... Oh, no, you don't. just see a little bit of the bed. There's a vacant bed on the, to the left of Mary. And what's so interesting about that, you see this empty bed. There's actually in the full length that you can not fully see, there's a little icon next to the bed. Hold on. We've got trouble here. There we go. Now you can see it. See the little icon there? And this vacant bed always seems to suggest that there, nine months from yesterday, which was the Feast of the Annunciation, is Christmas. And this is the celebration where the real miracle occurs of which the Christmas miracle is a consequence. So the real condescension, we think, oh, that God would become an infant. But he became an embryo as well. And that is this in some senses, forgotten mystery of our faith. And the fact that you have this vacant bed there seems to be making this suggestion almost that there is a distant analogy, perhaps, between birth as we know it. And yet, I remember digging into this as a graduate student and being so surprised to discover that where I was expecting some feminist attacks on the Annunciation as an outdated relic of the past that we needed to graduate from. In fact, that rhetoric had grown so tired that people were ready to move beyond it. And as one scholar puts it, Christianity achieved a double inversion of the pagan relationship between divinity and motherhood. It excludes the sex act, which features in mythological couplings, like Zeus and Europa, for example. But it also insists that a fully human mother gives birth to a fully human God. The incarnation is more supernatural and more natural than the human epiphanies of the pagan gods. We're talking about a real event. Has anyone seen this? I hope this is deeply familiar to you. This is one of your paintings, another one of them. That is a massive, beautiful image by George Hitchcock in the Art Institute that's entitled The Annunciation, 1887. We don't have this Henry Ossowa Tanner image of the Annunciation. It's at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. We do have some wonderful Henry Ossowa Tanners, but these are late 19th century artists, perhaps challenged by Courbet's, Gustave Courbet's suggestion, show me an angel and I'll paint one. The great 19th century painter. And they're like, well, guess what? I don't need there to be a physical angel because, as C.S. Lewis understood with the concept of L. Dills, right? Angels don't have bodies. 
And we can sometimes be deceived by these images and think, right, the angel is a physical being. The angel takes a body or an appearance for our sake, but they're not incarnate creatures. That's what the book of Hebrews lays out so clearly. That God chose us to take on our frames, and that is the moment that that's happening. That angel has reason to be a little bit, perhaps, jealous. Wow, he's taking on her form, not mine. (laughs) And so, I think what's interesting about Tanner and Hitchcock is they're saying, maybe I could have a spiritual view of the Annunciation. So there is Mary in the field of lilies, evocative of her purity. We think of the... Easter flowers that will show up on this altar. And maybe this is the moment that it's happening. She's just walking along. It's a reconception of this conception. <laughs> and I want to, I paired this with a, this medieval image with a modern feminist author, Tina Beatty, a post secular feminist who's recovered Christianity. There are many. And I'm going to pair this with an Medieval author, Gregory Palamas, the saint from Mount Athos in the Orthodox Church, who said the archangel was not, for, was not foretelling the future by saying the Lord is with thee. He wasn't saying, all right, Mary, here's the message. Uh, a couple weeks from now, he's going to show up. No, he was declaring what he saw happening at that time. <laughs> he's saying, wow, the Lord is upon you. <laughs> In other words, this is not paganism. This is not a god or an angel copulating with Mary. No. The angel is witnessing this, and it is the Holy Spirit hovering upon her, which we use the language of the temple that we get from Luke, who gets it from the Old Testament. The Shekinah glory hovers upon her as the incarnation happens. It wasn't an angel that was to overshadow her, nor an angel. Archangel, not a cherubim, not a seraphim, even better than that, but the power of the Most High in person who hovers upon her womb. And that is when our salvation begins. I love pointing out that March 25th, according to some calendars in the ancient world, is the date of the end of the creation of the world, the completion of the creation of the world. And so the wonderful coincidence there is that March 25th is where the old creation was completed, and it's also in the Christian calendar where the new creation begins. And the new creation into which we are stitched through the Eucharist, through baptism, through the gospel, is the body of Christ. And it starts right there. Wonderful. Why have we neglected this feast? The benefits of neglect are no commercialization, right? No displays. At Walmart, no. Tired of the Annunciation carols. Oh, we started them so early. No, none of that. But the joy is that we have room to grow into this feast. Now, we had a whole session on the Virgin Mary. Literally, we did a whole uh, semester on it and uh, here in our catechesis. And I'm just wondering, did, did anyone kind of, obviously, some of us have marked the Annunciation, but did anyone mark it in one way or another? It was weird that it fell on a Saturday, but, but perhaps one way of marking it is if you gave up something good in Lent, you can indulge and enjoy it, on Saturday because it wasn't a fast day. It trumps Lent. That's what the the Feast of the Annunciation does. It's such a joyous occasion and it often shows up in Lent. 
And there was one day where it actually converged with Good Friday, which is an incredible merger of the Christian calendar. And I believe that was last year, and it won't happen for another, like, 200 or something like that. So um, there's sometimes these wonderful convergences. But this time it appeared on a Saturday. Did anyone kind of mark it in some way? Has, Has this feast day kind of percolated into your life in one day or another, just out of curiosity? All right, well, there's room for that to happen. Rem- rem- <laughs> there's room. Re- remember that, um, and that's what this sheet is about. Remember that uh, the fact that I mentioned earlier that I got from Tim Larson, that um, Wheaton College in 1860, its finals were like December 26th. Because evangelicals don't do Christmas. Like, Puritans got rid of all that stuff. And now we do, thank goodness. That's unthinkable. Maybe one day we'll be at a point where, what, you have school on March 25th? That's crazy. Okay. So, nevertheless, here is the collect for the Annunciation. And these are wonderfully rich and theologically resonant collects in our Anglican tradition that actually merge the Passion and the Annunciation in a brilliant way. And most importantly, it's saying you and me are to be enunciate. <laughs> there's an uh, art historian at the University of Chicago, and she wrote a wonderful article on the Virgin Mary enunciate. And I said to her, I said, hey, Dr. Kumler, you know, so glad to see you on the cover of this medieval journal. And she looked at me and she said, it was the Virgin enunciate on the cover of the journal. It was just her name. It was wonderful to hear that, um, that scholar who was saying, no, no, it's not about me, it's about Mary. But in some ways, we reverse that here because <laughs> it's not about Mary, it's about you. <laughs> it's about me. It's about what the Lord wants to do in our lives as we empty ourselves and make space for him so that when we come up here, we're not full, but we're ready to say, let it be unto me according to your word. <laughs> So this collect is just taking the football and putting it right on your numbers and saying, run. And it's something we are at liberty to do in the Anglican tradition because as we explored several years ago, we are not, I dare use this word, forgive me, brothers and sisters in other traditions, we are not encumbered by the notion that she is necessarily in a different class of citizens From you and me. Because the Anglican tradition, maybe we're wrong, let's be open to that possibility, but we at least have the room to say that she's our sister who shares sin with us, but has been redeemed in the same way. Now that record scratch, if you're in a Catholic church, you're not allowed to say that. You're not allowed to. Or an Orthodox church. She's Panagia, all holy. But what's so interesting, and again, we've got to, we've got to think about this, but what's fascinating is there are Catholic theologians who have in, written books entitled Truly Our Sister, who have desperately longed for a Virgin Mary that is not cut off from regular people like you and me. And this is the contests and controversies that have swirled around the Virgin Mary. She has been a divider of Christian traditions, whereas I think she would want to have been a uniter. And so we have liberties that we can employ in this congregation of ours. But thinking of her as our sister, as our elder sister, as our fellow disciple, 
who can train us and teach us how to be a Christian. Because she, in some senses, is the first Christian. When she says, Lord, yes, my body is yours. My body belongs to you. And again, that tired rhetoric of the 1960s, Mary Douglas, Rosemary Radford, Ruth, they had perhaps a point for a time, but they actually suggested that the Annunciation was the rape of the goddess. Those were the words that early 1960s feminists used. And you don't have to even begin to refute that because it was the feminists of the 1980s and 1990s who said, you can do whatever you want with the Gospel of Luke, but there's no insinuation of that at all in the Gospel of Luke. Because what does God wait for? Consent. Consent. Good New Testament criticism has exonerated the biblical text of that outrageous accusation. And now people are saying, my goodness, the ultimate proof that Christianity is wonderful for women is this incredible tradition. Not that God is a mother, as I so frequently say, but that he has one, a far more daring suggestion. So let's pray this collect together. Won't you join me? We beseech thee, O Lord, pour thy grace into our hearts, that as we have known the incarnation of thy Son, Jesus Christ, by the message of an angel, so by his cross and passion, we may be brought unto the glory of his resurrection through the same Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The whole gospel is fit into that collect. Incredibly compact. You can read a systematic theology or you could just pray a collect. Right? It's all there. And notice how we would, of course, rightfully be nervous if someone were to say, I have been uh, impregnated by an angel or by the Holy Spirit and an angel came to me and I can't explain it. We would rightfully be concerned were that to occur in our congregation. And this is not what we're talking about. Of course, there's a singularity to the event of the Annunciation, just like there's a singular... This has happened once, and we are participating in it analogically. It... We can participate in it because it actually happened in the Virgin Mary. It can happen by analogy when Christ is born again in us. <laughs> Doesn't Paul say, I, I am like a mother laboring so that you can, so Christ can be born in you. That's one of the images that the New Testament used for discipleship. And it's one of these motifs that I think in the 21st century we need to recover especially as this continued misunderstanding of Christianity is somehow not good for women. In his book, The Body and Society, Peter Brown, the great late antiquity scholar, maybe probably the greatest scholar living of that period, certainly I might even say, he said that pagans knew Christianity and were especially suspicious of it because of its hospitality to women. It was one of the points against it. And it was one of the things that the Christians had to work uphill to resist that perception. But now we look at that and say, wow, that's, that's a badge of honor. That's not a badge of shame. So we think about these things together. And let's see where we are again. We are interspersing our discussion of the virtues with the feast days. And we've got the summer festivals coming up. We've got two sh- sessions in the next two weeks 
another one of our heavy-hitting couple dynamic duos, as we've had a couple of times throughout this session, we're going to have hope is on the horizon, the second of the theological virtues, faith, hope, and love. And then we move into love, and we're going to throw some joy in to conclude as well, along with the summer festivals, to just give you an idea, uh, remind you of where we are. We had that wonderful session with Jay last week. It was such a delight to have our, our one guest of the year. And I remind all of you out there, some of you have contacted me, thank you for that, that we have emphasized our Catholic roots in our 2015 and 16 and in this year, the virtues and the Martin Thornton focus on English spirituality. And our plan for 2017 and 2018 is to emphasize our evangelical roots. It is our schizophrenic reality as a congregation, but not really schizophrenic. It's trying to hold both of these identities together. And at the end of the day, that's what it means not just to be at all souls. That's what it means to be an Anglican. And it feels tense and sometimes frustrating. But let's keep in mind, we don't want to be fully satisfied because we are one of the confessions that is at liberty also to say that the church really is divided. And we really aren't the whole. Sadly, there are Christian traditions that cannot say that. They are bound to say, no, no, you broke off from us. We are the entirety. One day you'll graduate into it. And as Anglicans, we, we, we have a good reason to repent. We can say, oh, no, it was a real mess. And this, this thing is broken. And we want to hold these together, maybe not be too consistent And it's one of the frustrations of Anglicanism, but also one of its positive aspects. And as we focus on this Protestant side, as we think about the theme of grace, of which Mary is the exemplar in many senses, um, we are going to think about uh, grace in art, grace in family life, grace in film, grace in the tradition of the reformers in scripture. And I simply throw that out there. Some of you have seen this before, but if you have not, I just remind you, Um, There are all these advantages that I pointed out to what's great about teaching and also is grace and music. What is your talent? How can you bring grace to bear? What's wonderful about this, and if I just highlight a few of these, is that you learn more than ever when you are up here at this podium. Don't be intimidated by it. The benefit of it is you are reading deeply so that you have something to say. And so the tradition is coming through you to us. And that is such a great benefit that I don't want to be the only one that benefits from it. You should be benefiting from it. And so think about what that might be. And the way that will happen is if you say, hey, I'd like to teach on, I don't know, assign something to me. You could say that. I'd be like, all right, late Luther. Uh, or um, how about Zwingli? I don't know. I mean, who knows? We Something, and then you would be the one that digs into the, and I will give you a book through the catechist budget, and we will put books in your hands, which is your only compensation, unfortunately, um, it, and the spiritual benefit of it all, <laughs> that you will kind of think about throughout the year. You have this magnet. You go through life. You're thinking about one day I'll be doing catechesis. Then that day comes. You scramble together those insights, and you present to us. So again, millinerd at gmail.com. Please email me or come up to me. Always, if I don't get back to email me again, I'll get back to you. So um, we'd love to have more people um, to continue this adventure of catechesis. Um, Dr. Wood was so happy with the turnout. He was like, wow, what a dynamic situation. Um, that 
you have here at All Souls and Catechesis, we just want that to continue because this is one time where we are all together as a congregation. So if you'd like to do that, let me know. would love to recruit more people in that regard. And if you also want to just continue to sit and enjoy, showing up is a sacrifice. And we thank you for your continual attendance. Um, it is noted, as, it is appreciated. Uh, when you're not here, you're missed. <laughs> and so we... Even if you don't end up teaching, don't feel bad about that. Say, hey, that's not my gift. I'm just going to appreciate and hopefully enjoy these sessions. Let me wrap up a couple of things on faith. Um, I wanted, There were so many things we couldn't go through, but one thing to keep in mind is that we talked about Tertullian, and Ryan Clevenger pointed out to me so brilliantly that, in fact, Tertullian says that, I believe, because it's absurd, in the context of a rational defense of the Christian faith. And he sometimes gets a bad rap for being the absurdity guy. But that was a really good point. There's a rationality to Christianity that we need to remember. And what happens, though, is that in the Enlightenment, new enemies of the faith are hatched in the wake of Christian disunity. I think it's our fault. So when you deal with an atheist, when you deal with a rationalist, have mercy and sympathy because it's our divisions that caused them to have to do what they had to do to think reason could solve it all. Of course it can't. But to trust in reason because the Christian churches were ripping one another apart. But the reason I put this out there is because, remember, back from last year, the Cambridge Platonists, these people that are totally neglected and we need new dissertations and scholars running and chasing down these incredible people like Anne Conway, who's holding her own with Henry Moore and Ralph Cudworth, in Cambridge and thinking about the, the reality of Christianity in the face of these objections. And I put them out there because these guys, the boogeymen of modernity, right? Thomas Hobbes, Rene Descartes, and John Locke, oh, with their challenges, how will we ever address them? They're so daring. And we have, in so many ways, outthought their challenges to Christianity, as important as they are. They reigned for centuries. But what I always want to wish all to remember is that their chief opponents in their lifetime were the Cambridge Platonists. And what does that have to do with faith? Faith has been contested as sub-rational knowledge because of the culture that these thinkers brought into the world. And you have every reason to contest that. Even if you don't want to follow these arguments, you don't have to. Just know that people whose job it is to follow the arguments, have come up with wonderful counter-arguments and how Christianity can survive these critiques. So please simply know that. You don't have to modify Christianity to fit into their world. They need to be modified to fit into ours. Cyril O. Reagan, the great theologian at Notre Dame, was giving a conference presentation this year, and he said, Oh, no, we don't judge Dante by the modern. We judge the modern by Dante. Oh, what a line, right? Just that's, There's wisdom in that. And I say that simply to point out that you could read Alvin Plantinga's book, Warranted Christian Belief, and this is the harvest of generations of many evangelical thinkers among them giving a sort of knockdown, drag-out response to the objections to the thing called faith. And you could read the whole thing, or you could read what I did, Jay Wood's summary of it. <laughs> okay? Belief in God can be properly basic, that is to say, epistemically warranted in the absence of argumentative support. 
Sort of like belief that there is an external world or that there are other minds. Sorry, there are no other minds in this room. There's just mine. You are reflections of me. Uh, you might dispute that and I'd say, prove it. Ha ha. Right? It's like, you're really crazy. That's the problem. Right? <laughs> and what people like Plantinga have done, and I love that it's called Nicholas Waltersdorf and others, these reform thinkers, um, the extended Aquinas-Calvin model. <laughs> it's this ecumenical uh, coalition against this reduction of the world to some, so that faith would be silly. And that's what has happened. So just know that these people are out there and that faith really can be understood as a virtue in our world today. And it is philosophically respectable, we might suggest, and it can, therefore, be a virtue. We heard Jay unpack this in our session last time, but I just wanted to point out from another article of his, a virtue is an acquired disposition to excellent functioning in some generically human sphere of activity that is difficult or important. The virtue of learning how to play the, a piano. It's not easy to develop that virtue. And it's, we might analogically call that a virtue. And faith can be understood that way as well. It can be a deeply anchored habit, a default rather than an occasional trait of the personality. You can develop the virtue of faith by the Holy Spirit. And lest this feel like a work... Now, again, when you know something is a virtue, when it happens spontaneously, and it's not this... don't want to have to put that check in the plate, but like joyful, hey, I'm, I've cultivated the virtue of liberality. Here you go. God loves a cheerful giver. I've cultivated that disposition over time, and that can happen with faith as well. And that's why we might call it a virtue. To engage in prayer, worship, service, and other practices associated with the Christian life tend to deepen one's affections for the persons or the matters prayed for. Deepened affections, in turn, focus the attention and situate yourself to begin to understand what's been accepted on faith. When you engage in the practices of our liturgy here, you are cultivating that disposition, that virtue of faith, and it gets easier and easier. And in times when it's really hard to have faith, you will draw upon the times where it was easier and you came and you built that muscle. And so we can perhaps think of faith in that way. And you're, by showing up, you're working on it right here, cultivating that virtue of faith. And yet at the same time, it is important to point out that unlike justice and courage, which we acquire through imitation and repetition, the theological virtue of faith is given by grace. This is not a work. And that is a necessary point. And that was sort of behind our tangle with Luther who saw faith becoming one work among others and resisted that, and that's rightfully resisted when it's understood in that way. And so that's one of the things that Jay was trying to point out. And I would simply also suggest that lest we get a little bit too proud that there are the Waltersdorfs and Plantingas out there who've made it all acceptable, and see, I'm totally, I can be an intellectually serious person and a Christian at the same time, and I'm a product of a generation of Wheaton folks who said, go do that. And we did it, and it's wonderful. But at the same time, beware the trap of respectability. And so sometimes, even if Tertullian was rational, 
He still used that word absurd, and that might be why we need someone like Kierkegaard, who sees these respectable, rational Christians in his 19th century society and says, you know what? I'm pretty smart. I can't comprehend the divine mercy that can forgive sins. The more intensely I believe it, the less I understand it. That is a reversal of Augustine. <laughs> right? Faith-seeking understanding? No. The more intensely I believe it, I just I, I lose grip on it because it's so wonderful. Thus, probability does not seem to increase as the inwardness of faith is augmented. Rather, the opposite. The better I get at the virtue of faith, the more and more crazy it all seems. And I think there's some wisdom to that. Faith is always going to be an adventure. You can never be, well, see, I'm a person of faith. I don't have to approach God the way that person... No, no. It's always God you're dealing with. So faith can never be accessed in that way. So let's believe in our Walters or from Planticus and thank God for them, but always remember that we need to pizzazz it up a little bit sometimes as well and realize, but there's some fundamental wildness to this belief in something like the resurrection of the body that we have to confess together as a congregation because it's hard to believe in that. We haven't seen it yet. So let's keep that in mind as well. And I just wanted to do one last quote of Tomasz Halik, the wonderful Czech psychoanalyst who is friend of John Paul II, trained under communism, went to the underground seminary, and now he has an incredible ministry. I'm quoting from his book, I Want You to Be. Incredible ministry in, amongst atheist Europe. People, So many people are coming to faith through his ministrations because he's like, oh, you're an atheist? I agree with you about a lot of things, except for the fact that you don't believe in God. And he'll it'll start a conversation and say, well, you're right about the God you say you don't believe in. I don't believe in either. Let's talk about the God beyond that God. God is not received by us or among us as a fact among facts or a thing among things, faith is infinitely more than acknowledgement of God's existence based on logical reflection. You don't become a Christian by believing that God is, but by believing that God is love. It has to be personal. That's what Edwards and Luther and Calvin were saying. Faith is this personal act. It's not just you check a box, I know God is out there. But this kind of Faith involves us. So faith is a virtue. We needed two weeks for it, so that was the time we gave to it. A little bit of extra. Let's, um, well, it would be unfair to just jump right back into the Annunciation, but any questions or comments about that? We need to give a little breathing space. And this guy is just fantastic. Really worth reading his work. Wonderful. Uh, I, I, will, I will edit myself there. Anybody else? Anybody comments or questions about this? Just the adventure of faith, the dynamism of it is what I'm trying to get across. I love this philosophical work that's been done, but um, this virtue is dealing with the three-personed God. And as I was doing, reading our liturgy today and participating, I'm like, I will never understand the Trinity, nor will you, right? And that's why this faith always has to be dynamic. And that's why it's not an answer, <laughs> Right? Here's the logical problem, fixed and solved. God sent his equation to us. No, he sent his boy. <laughs> and that's why in the Orthodox tradition, Mary is some, one of her favorite designations, my favorite designations for her. Oh, holy virgin, 
untangler of the web of the Athenians. <laughs> right? You get it? These Greeks who know the great, brilliant Aristotle and Plato and all the sophists as well and say, oh, she has just untangled that intellectual web. How? Through her brilliance? Through her son. The answer to the history of philosophy is a child. (laughs) So let's keep that in mind as well. That toggles us to the Annunciation as we think about both the radical uh, dispute of Luther, but also the theological virtues supplementing the cardinal virtues as well. We want to kind of be between those. And let's think again about the Annunciation. Just out of curiosity, how many were here for that session we had, Those that whole, okay, we got... One. All right. So a couple, maybe a couple more. No one's here for the, for the whole session we did on the Virgin Mary here at All Souls. Okay, we got a few. So we could do the whole stuff, the whole thing again. Um, but I wanted to zip it up a little bit with uh, Dyer Made McCullough. New book, All Things Made New. Wonderful new publication amidst all of them that are for celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And I've gotten some new material from him just to, to go back to that, uh, se- that semester we did on the Virgin Mary. And it caused me to think again about what really was going on in the 16th century in regard to the Virgin. And so this famous print, The Beautiful Virgin of Regensburg, okay, is this is a print made in the 1915-20 time period. And what you see is an advertisement of all the people that are coming to Regensburg to this brand new created shrine and experiencing the miracles of the Virgin. And there's Altdorfer's wonderful image of this Virgin Mary, which presumably goes back to a Byzantine original in the 13th century, but here's a, a print in the Renaissance era in Germany of her. And... The prayer on the bottom says in German, you are of perfect beauty, my love, and there is no blemish in you. Hail Mary. Hence the beautiful Mary of Regensburg. Now you might look at this and say, well, see, this is the kind of stuff we've got to get back to. We've got to build pilgrimage shrines and people need to go and experience that. Well, Balthazar Hubmeier who later will be so embarrassed at his activities that he will become a radical reformer, because it's that, the, the converts are the worst, right? The, the ones who are like, ah, I got so into the Virgin Mary and now I've given up on that completely. Well, he called on her to heal someone because someone was injured in the destruction of the synagogue that he had incited. <laughs> He's like, well, Mary hates the Jews and you should too. Let's go destroy the synagogue because that's what it means to be a real Christian. And they weren't worried about the Jews who were being hurt, but one person like hurt his leg. Oh no, he was so pious. He was... Being an anti-Semite, Mary, Mary, please heal him. And the healing happened. Okay, So this is not the kind of Virgin Mary that we might want to be attached to. There's a new book <laughs> called um, The Virgin Mary, Bane of the Jews. This, she, she really was an, a weapon in so many times in the Christian tradition. Uh, we, we don't even have time to get into that, but she worked that way, the Virgin of Victory. She gave the weapons to the soldiers at Lepanto. She is the one who enabled us to overcome the Muslims. There's a, there's a, a militaristic Mary that we might want to avoid. Even so, in 1519, 50,000 people visited this new chapel that had been constructed to celebrate the beautiful Mary 
of Regensburg. We're in the south of Germany. I zero in on this and you can see people falling before this three-dimensional statue, throwing themselves upon her. And we might say there, there is a strange, uncomfortable connection to paganism. A young Erasmus, the great humanist, could say, my salvation, my soul and certain refuge, the mother of the eternal son, the true Diana. You could test your instincts as a classicist by writing glorious hymns to the Virgin Mary, referring to her as the pagan goddess. That's what a young humanist did. And yet as he grew older, in his 60s, he mocked those same moves. The more I learned about the scriptures, I realized that to associate her with Diana was an insult. Christ is the anchor of our salvation. Mary is not. Somebody who never converted to Protestantism saw this danger and this risk and began to be concerned about the kind of stuff that was going on at Regensburg. And then Luther, in his address to the nobility of the German nation, he says, oh, level that shrine at Regensburg. It is not the gospel. It's not helping anybody take it out. And so we might say, well, that's what it means to be a Protestant and to think about the Virgin Mary. It's to know those abuses and to do everything we can to avoid them. End of lesson. Why did you celebrate the Annunciation? <laughs> right? This is all a trap. The same Luther, folks, the same Luther, in the same time of 1520s also shows his abiding affection for the Virgin Mary. Yes, that was an abuse, but why would you even think of abandoning her because she is the bulwark against heresy? And that's how she's functioned. Yes, she's been a weapon. Let's call that an abuse, but not throw out the baby with the bathwater and say she's also the way that you stay in the heartland of Christian orthodoxy. And I love showing this contrast because these are both by Albrecht Dürer in 1520. And Dürer was in a depression. He was in a funk. And it was the message of grace that Martin Luther preached that brought him out of it. And the record of his conversion, Erwin Panofsky, the great art historian, says, can be found in that contrast. You might say, what? If you became a Protestant, wouldn't you just... Get rid of Mary altogether? No, Luther goes from a Mary being crowned to a more focused, iconic Mary that has the emphasis upon Jesus. <laughs> what it means to be Protestant is to have a right understanding of the Virgin Mary. So Albrecht Dürer understood, thanks to Luther. And with that as a backdrop, let me read to you from the commentary on the Magnificat and if you want more, just go back on the All Souls podcasts and read that and listen to that glorious commentary on the Magnificat connected to Luther and Bach that we heard from Professor Horn. That podcast is a great resource. Hear that again. It was incredible. But from that same commentary on the Magnificat, the divine glory joined with her nothingness, says Luther. The divine merit with her homage the divine greatness with her smallness, the divine goodness with her lack of merit. You hear what he's doing. He's saying she's the illustration of salvation by faith alone. She doesn't bring anything to the table. She wasn't barren 
hoping for a child the way that Abraham, Abraham and Sarah were. No. God just, choo- she, she, God just chooses her and says, you, that would have been easier to understand. That was more of a scriptural paradigm. But just out of the bright blue sky, you, you're the one. She has nothing to offer, but that's the point. Neither do we. And God chooses us nonetheless. The divine goodness with her lack of merit, the divine grace with her unworthiness. Oh, thou blessed virgin mother of God, hail to thee. I'll even call you queen of heaven. So long as you don't make her a goddess, because it's true. Because of the way God met her in faith. (laughs) And Luther holds on to this for his entire career. You might say, well, this is early Luther, right? No, no, no. All the way through the end, he has this warm, affectionate piety about thinking of that dear maiden he called her, the Virgin Mary. And so when you go to Nuremberg and you walk into a Lutheran church and you're expecting it to be barren, expecting it to all the Virgin Mary images to be taken down, no, you see Weitstoss's glorious image of the feast day of the Annunciation, wonderful wood-carved structure that just hovers over the entire cathedral. And this church went Lutheran, and they didn't. Don't touch it. We're Lutherans. Hold on to that. We celebrate the feast of the Annunciation because it's about Jesus. That one you can't get rid of. They said. Or if you, sorry for the, you can't see too much on the image, but if you go to Lübeck, another northern German city that became Lutheran, the cathedral, they said, oh, well, Mary at the cross, don't touch her, don't touch her, we're Lutheran. We know that this is a more conservative view of the Reformation that can't give her up. And folks, let me tell you something. The people that gave her up quickly became heretics. <laughs> They created the idea of the celestial body of Jesus that always existed because, ooh, we don't want to get God involved in the mess of the womb. And so he passed through her like a pipe, said one of these 16th century neo-heretics, just articulating, recycling the same bad theology from the early church. And the answer to that bad theology was she's the mother of God. Even in the womb, he's fully divine. But they just came up with that stuff again. And Unitarianism started to be created because this Trinitarian stuff is a little bit too close to the Virgin Mary. And if you perceive some misogyny in those heretical responses to Orthodox Christianity, you would be right. Like it or not, God got messy inside the womb of a woman. And she is an inextricable part of our Christian faith, should we choose to stay Orthodox, (laughs) if we want to stay in the heartland of the faith. And that's why these great churches, this doesn't happen. They don't remove those images. But the best part, and I've shown you two of these, and I'm now going to show you a third. Two of the law-gospel dichotomies that we talked about, remember? Right? With the law on one side and the gospel on the other. Well, this is the most famous of them all. It's in Weimar, and you zoom in on it, and you see law gospel sort of mixed together. But Jesus is hovering above, and the stream of imputing righteousness from his side is splashing, you can see it, right onto the head of Lucas Cronach. And there's Luther next to him, and there's John the Baptist pointing up. And the whole law gospel idea has been mixed up by Lucas Cronach, and it says, you know what? 
Instead of Mary at the foot of the cross, which we remember saw right here, it's you. It's Luther and Cronach. That is, living people, imagine yourself in the place of Mary at the foot of the cross. What an amazing move. Mary is important, but as important as she is, if we get overemphasizing her, we can sort of be spectators in the action of faith instead of realizing, again, that God wants to do the same thing with us, which is why the daringness of Lucas Chronic including himself, although some suggest that his son concluded this painting, and I like to think of him, his son, saying, hey, Dad, I know you would never want to do this, but you know this idea of law gospel? You've imbibed it. I've seen it in your life, and I'm going to put you in this. Oh, son, don't. But then he died. (laughs) And I like to think of Lucas Cronick the Younger saying, Dad, you're going in there, and that imputing blood, and I'm going to put you in the place where Mary was. (laughs) Because like her, you've received him by faith. And that imputing righteousness has splashed upon you. And if you look in and zero in at the face of Lucas Cronach, and you can do this with incredible zoom potential, and our screen's not big enough, but he, he just has this look of just passivity. God has declared him righteous, has nothing to do with him, and the serenity that comes from that. That is the face of someone who knows they have not justified themselves. They've been justified. And the vocabulary of the Virgin Mary helps us to understand that because that's what it was like with her as well. It's amazing. And now here's the law gospel thing that we are more familiar with, right? With the law on this side and there you can see the streaming blood of righteousness too. But even in the early Lucas Chronic images, this print that would circulate around, I'm going to zoom in on the upper right there. <laughs> Look, there she is again. And you can see she's directly connected. That's the Annunciation. The Annunciation is central to what it means to be an evangelical, at least for Lucas Cronach and Luther. And there's Jesus bearing his cross coming to Mary. I don't think that's the best visual theology because that's kind of a pre, kind of the celestial. He was already incarnate before he comes to her, but we'll let him off the hook here. It's, it's a beautiful depiction. But she is involved. She is an exemplar of what it means to have faith. An inextricable part of this. And I just people forget that. It's right there. She shows up in these great law gospel tracts. But what happened was, as the churches split further and further apart from one another, the Catholics glorified Mary too much, so we didn't glorify her much at all. 